0: Morning everyone. It's a privilege to be with you here this morning. I bring greetings on behalf of Mennonite Foundation of Canada. And I look forward to chatting with people after the service or this evening if you can come out this evening. Our scriptures this morning are taken from Matthew 25, a familiar passage, and from Joshua 24, a passage that may not be as familiar. First, I'll be reading Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Turning to the Old Testament, the Old Testament reading comes from the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, verses 15 through 19. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight. He protected us all along the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. On the surface, that sentiment seems easy to aspire to. Yep, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But when we take seriously all of the possible implications of living that out, as outlined throughout scripture, not so easy. It gets pretty sobering. If we truly want to follow Jesus and serve God, then we are called to intercessory prayer, caring for creation, sharing the good news of the gospel, sacrificial financial and volunteer support of your congregation, this place of worship, and of other ministries. Learning to be still. Learning to be open to God's leading. Service to others. It's only a partial list, but there's a lot there to work at. Another of the ways that we can serve the Lord is through the legacy we will leave when we end our days on this earth. What we do, what we don't do. The impressions we leave behind in the memories of those who know us. The ancient Greek leader Pericles once said, what you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but is what is woven into the lives of others. Planning for legacy, for ending well, can be a very difficult task. Even with the best of intentions on our part, it can be hard. If we aren't mindful of who we are and whose we are, The temptations of our high-speed information overload age can overwhelm us and lead us down a totally different path than where we want to go. We may not end well if we do not always remember whose we are. I had the privilege a few years back, along with my Mennonite Foundation colleagues from across Canada, of spending an afternoon in dialogue with Gerald Gerbrandt, a man who used to be the president of Canadian Mennonite University in Winnipeg. We asked him to come to our meetings out there to share some thoughts on the book of Deuteronomy. We wanted to hear his insights on how the teachings of that early book relate to MF's work in financial stewardship. Now, Deuteronomy is an Old Testament book that probably doesn't make most of our top ten lists of the parts of the Bible that we turn to most frequently, for some maybe not even the top twenty. For more than a few people I know, that's where they got stuck, stuck in their read-through-the-Bible section, right? All those names, all those rules. And we may be d- tempted to dismiss Deuteronomy as just a list of difficult-to-understand rules, rules, rules. But Gerald had spent a lot of time researching and understanding the fifth book of Moses, as this is also known, he was in the process of finishing a believer's commentary on the book of Deuteronomy and sending it off to the publisher. He had been eating, breathing, living, praying Deuteronomy for months and months. Gerald made a passionate incredible case of the importance of understanding and remembering God's call to the people of Israel as it was outlined in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy warns us not to forget who we are not to forget whose we are. When the good times are rolling, when the weather's nice, when life is easy, it's not hard to forget. While God speaks loudly to us in our pain, he often whispers in our pleasures, when I am not mindful enough, I run the risk of being as spiritually deaf as I am physically deaf on my left side. I've lost most of the hearing on my left side, so sometimes I don't always hear people properly if they come up to me on that side. I'm forever telling my teenage daughters, who are both fairly soft-spoken, that if they want to speak to me about something other than getting a ride somewhere or money, they should talk to me on this side. The funny thing is when they talk about those other things, it's very loud and everyone can hear it. I don't know if you've experienced that in your own home. Speaking of deafness, the story is told of an older man who had serious hearing problems for many years. He went to the doctor, and the doctor was able to prescribe him a set of hearing aids. At the end of the day, the man was able to hear 100%. He went back to the doctor for a checkup a couple months later. The doctor said, your hearing is perfect. Your family must be really pleased that you can hear again. The older man paused. He said, no. I haven't told my family yet. (laughs) I just sit around and listen to their conversations. I've changed my will three times. (laughs) This man's family forgot that they should be careful what they say in his presence. If I forget who I am, if I forget whose I am, it's easy to forget that I am only here for a short time. My father died in September 2013. My brother reminded me after the funeral that in my clan, the men don't tend to live much past about 76, which is the age that my dad was when he passed away. It goes back several generations. That's all the guys get. If that's true, my life is more than two-thirds over. It's time to start thinking about ending well. I just got a message the other day from my brother, who was very sad, somebody that I spent a lot of time with in high school, who was only a year younger than me, died earlier in the week, and there's a memorial for him next weekend. We just don't know how much time we're going to have. So if we truly believe that God owns everything, we need to keep the question of the end in mind throughout our lives. How do we live now so that we can end well? In the book, Necessary Conversations Between Adult Children and Their Aging Parents, Gerald and Marlene Kaufman caution against parents leaving too much to their children. Being too generous to children with money can create dependency. It can lead to squandering. It can lead to failure to assume adult responsibility. I heard recently that there are more 30-year-olds living with their parents today in Canada than there has been in over 100 years, 30-year-old people. And in most cases, that isn't related to helping out on the farm. That's just that the basement is a cheaper place to be, I guess. I don't know. Warren Buffett, one of the world's most successful investors, famously suggested it's a good idea to live your children enough so that they can do anything that they want, but not so much that they can do nothing. He took most of his money and put it into charitable foundations, some of them which the children could control in terms of blessing others. He wanted to encourage them to be focused on helping others, not thinking about what new toys they wanted to get. William Gates Sr., the name may sound familiar to a few people. That's because he's the father of this guy called Bill Gates that created this computer software that wouldn't work for me this morning when I was trying to get the presentation up, and thankfully Pastor Ike bailed me out. Anyways, Bill Gates' dad was thinking on the same lines as Warren Buffett. Bill Gates Sr. once said that people who get large inheritances tend not to be the most productive members of society. In Proverbs 20 and verse 21, the writer tells us an inheritance quickly gained in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. There's a movement in right now in the United States called the Giving Pledge. The pledge is a commitment by the world's wealthiest people to, de- to get a- dedicate most of their wealth to charitable causes. The guy who started Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, his colleague Paul Allen, Richard Branson of Virgin, Elon Musk, the guy who's making all the electric cars, Ted Turner, Jeff Skoll of eBay, And a guy named George Lucas that had this little thing called Star Wars you may have heard of, they've all signed this pledge to give half or more of the money that comes through their hands in their lifetime to charity, either during their life or at the end of their life in their states. British rock star Sting went even further. He was quoted not long ago as saying that none of his six children would receive any of his $300 million fortune when he departs this world for rock and roll heaven. The former police lead singer plans to give it all away. Ouch. On the one hand, it's not hard to make a case for front-loading assistance to family members, helping children grandchildren when they're younger, raising families, paying for a home. I've met a lot of Christian parents who help sacrificially as people are getting through their formative years but then say to them, don't expect a big gift when we pass away. But many of us would see the position taken by Mr. Sting as rather extreme. No money at all for our kids? Wow. U.S. author and radio host Dave Ramsey goes so far as to say that that kind of thinking is not biblical. Ramsey's made millions of dollars preaching his version of financial peace and helping people get out of debt, through his so-called financial peace course, he's got a new series out called The Legacy Journey. In it, Ramsey says that families are called to manage wealth for God's glory. God owns everything after all, right? Passing on money to future generations can be a good thing if it is done for the purpose of expanding God's kingdom. This is the important qualifier. For Christian parents, passing on money to the next generation is a good thing if it is done for God's glory. Wealth transfer is not to be about consumption, not to be about materialism, it's about to be expanding kingdom purposes. Ramsey warns that people must protect their families from being damaged by money. Responsibilities have to be passed on along with wealth, so a values transfer becomes crucial. If family members are following God, they should be first in line. Remember the big if. And people need to have the strength and the maturity to handle what is left to them, something informed by God's call in our life. It is biblical to plan for the future, for the Christian end-of-life planning includes both the us of family and the them beyond our household. Half of adult Canadians don't have wills in place. They have never talked to somebody about it. They've never had documents drafted so somebody can look after their them if they're incapacitated studies even show that of half the people who've got stuff in place it's out of date so seven out of ten out canadians need to do something some work in ensuring that they don't leave a, a mess for the people that come after them christians i've found are no better prepared than canadians at large for many of us when it comes to end of life thinking we're either feathers or fur feathers or fur are the favorites for North Americans when it comes to thinking about end of life. First, we have the feathers. Some people like the ostrich posture. We just put our heads in the sand. Don't worry about it. Everything will go away. Then there's the fur. Three monkeys. See no evil. Hear no evil. Speak no evil. La, 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 la. Sadly, this denial... Is effective the death rate in southern Ontario throughout all of Canada and the rest of the world in fact according to Google remains stubbornly stuck at 100% it's just a matter of time for all of us in Psalm 90 verse 10 the psalmist writes our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass." and we fly away. In the 15th century, Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon came to this continent and visited Florida looking for the fountain of youth. Six centuries later, we're no closer to finding it, but lots of people keep on looking. Sadly, we are no closer to understanding the importance of talking to our loved ones about values and end-of-life stuff as well. When I suggest to people, that they should talk to their family about their wishes and their plans, the most common pushback I get from folks is, well, I don't want to do that because the kids might fight. If I'm feeling bold in a particular conversation, I may say to people, well, perhaps, but when do you want that to happen? Would you like to happen while you can still referee and hopefully sort things out? Or would you like your family to be squabbling in a receiving line in a funeral home? Because if it's the latter, the chances that they'll still fellowship together are a lot less. I got an interesting story about this in a most unexpected way. About 16 months ago, I was in a nasty car accident. Someone wasn't watching. Somebody had cut them off, and they decided to look over their shoulder and curse the other person out while turning into the path of where my car was sitting, waiting for a light to change. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, he's getting awfully close. And all of a sudden, the side of my wife's car was gone. One brief incident of somebody not paying attention slowed me down for seasons. It took about six months of being pulled, poked, and prodded on a physiotherapy table to get one single important muscle just to relax. So, if you spend that much time with one person yanking on you, and clever and pleasant as professional as those people are, eventually they run out of stuff to talk to you about, right? So, one morning, Marley asked me what I do for a living. And it was fascinating because most of the time when I tell people that I help people give money away and I talk to people about end of life planning, The general response is people get really interested in the weather, how the Blue Jays did last night, or anything that will change the conversation really quickly, right? You've all had that experience, probably. But that day, something very different happened. As soon as I told Marley how few families have meaningful conversations about their values and their wishes, a third person joined us. There was a woman sitting on a screen, just here to the left, at the desk taking phone calls and appointments for people and that sort of thing. She came racing around from her desk and said, I need to tell you a story. Christina's parents sat her and her siblings down to tell them about their end of life plan. They were not very happy. In fact, they were quite upset. They didn't want to hear about death. They didn't want to think about the idea of their parents not being around. And they just said, leave me out of this. I don't want to hear it. A couple months later, A father of one of Christina's good friends passed away. Not only had there been no conversation, there was no plan. There was a big mess. Things got ugly, relationships were strained. Christina got a front row seat on a family's train wreck. When she saw that, she completely flipped. Her and her siblings, who also heard the story secondhand, went from being upset at their parents to being grateful. She thanked them for their thoughtfulness, for talking about their planning. I've come to believe that while some would say that leaving most of your money in your estate to charity is not a biblical thing, there's plenty of evidence in the Bible that leaving everything to family members is no closer to God's plan for us. A lot of scripture is difficult to understand though in proverbs 13 it says the good leave an inheritance to their children's children but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous unrighteous understanding the context is an important thing here you could read that at face value and say well that's easy i'm not supposed to leave anything to the kids i'll just leave it all to the grandchildren right not exactly that isn't what the writer is saying if you read it in the broader context wealth can only be successfully transferred between generations if there's a values transfer that happens as well you may have heard the old saying about how some families go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in about three generations one generation works hard makes money the second generation enjoys it the third generation fritters it away and they're back on the line Many of us, when we hear discussions of wealth, may be tempted to say, that's that's about somebody else. That's two rows behind me or three chairs over. That's got nothing to do with me. Those people have more. I'm just scraping by. Here's an inconvenient truth that might change that assumption. If you're here today and you have food in your fridge, if you have clothes on your back, if you have a roof over your head and a place to sleep tonight you are ahead of three-quarters of the people in the world today. There are 60 million refugees in the world today, more than there have been in modern history, many of whom would love to have our worst day. Don't take my word for it. When you go home, check it out for yourself. There's a website called globalrichlist.com. I will warn you, though, it's not a very comfortable experience. You enter your income, and it tells you where you rank compared to everyone else alive on the planet, 7 point whatever billion people it is. A person who, owns tw- who earns $25,000 a year is in the top 10% of the people in the world today. Double that income to $50,000 a year for a family, and you make more money than 98% of the people alive in the world today. It all depends on the the measuring stick whether we're looking at the people just around us or understanding the two and a half billion people in the world live on two dollars a day or less so where does matthew 25 the new testament scripture that i read earlier figure into all of this for people who've gone to church regularly for a long time that passage which i only read part of may be very familiar some of it have heard it many times some of it think of it us think of it as the parable of the sheep and the goats In some other translations, it's titled The Judgment of the Nations. Many of us at the end of our lives will have the biggest opportunity we ever had to use some of the resources entrusted to us for kingdom purposes. Our last will and testament is our final testimony to our values. Will we use it to extend a cool cup of water, food, clothing, support for the Great Commission for the needy? Will Jesus be able to see the choices we make around end-of-life use of stuff and say, just as you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it for me. There was a study of in the States that found that less than half of Americans felt it is important to leave a lot of money to the next generation. Less than a third were sure that their children would be able to properly handle what they might leave them. The title of the article was Baby Boomers May Be the First Generation Not to Pass Wealth on to Children. Most families pass on much or most of their estates to children in equal shares. Gerald and Marlene Kaufman says, many Christian parents designate charity to receive a share similar to or partial of what their adult children get. That's called the charity child idea. So for a family with four adult children, it means adopting a fifth and dividing a state into five shares, one for each child, one for charities. Sometimes it's uneven amounts, bigger shares for the children, a tithe for charity. Some children encourage their parents to give a larger chunk to their church, to other charities, because they're doing fine. They don't need a lot of help. In some other cases, parents choose, encouraged by lawyers or advisors who have little concept of generosity, to just leave the money to the kids and they'll give it away. Problem is, studies show it regularly works out that way. If you want to be challenged in your thinking about money, faith, and end-of-life planning, read what Christian author Randy Alcorn has to say on the subject. Read it slowly, because some of it isn't very comfortable. His little book, The Treasure Principle, is a great place to start. Another longer and more challenging book is his Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And in that book, Alcorn raises the issue of people being qualified to inherit as an important spiritual consideration. Anyone can spend money, but precious few can handle it responsibly and biblically, Randy Alcorn says. Most of our children will be no more generous than they see us being. That's just the reality. In many cases, it is far less so. I really enjoy working with people from the builder generation, generous saints who give sacrificially. And you may know that many mainline denominations are in serious decline. I read one study that says, if the Lord tarries, the Anglican Church of Canada will probably close the doors of its last church in about 2035, if current trends of decline In those pews continue. The United Church of Canada has a magazine called The Observer, and that denomination, which was once the biggest in Canada, is now closing a church a week on average, and it has full-time people on staff whose job it is to go around and close things down, sell off the buildings. The comments of A treasurer at one Kitchener church that I talked to sum up that problem. The difference between generations when it comes to giving are extreme. When one elderly member passes on to glory, the congregation needs to attract half a dozen, sometimes even eight or ten, young families to make up the difference in that one family's giving. It isn't happening. Many of these churches are merging or closing altogether. Growing in a Christian walk requires becoming other-centered. You may have seen this bumper sticker somewhere, I'm spending my children's inheritance. Go ahead, chuckle, but then take a breath and think about it for a minute. Dave Ramsey says that that is actually a very sad statement on the maturity level of people today. I recall a meeting years ago sitting across the table from a wonderful, generous businessman who expressed sadness that his adult children, all of them quite well-to-do, weren't involved in supporting charities to nearly the same extent as their parents. Do you ever talk to them about it, I asked. Did they know your giving patterns? No, he replied. I never told them, but they, they had to have known. How they had to have known, I'm not quite sure. Part of his sadness was the fact that they didn't catch what he and his wife were up to. The other part of the problem is many of his kids probably don't spend enough time in the gym. And I'm not talking about pumping iron or running laps. I mean spiritual fitness. In the book With Thankful Hearts, Sharon Blizzard talks about the spiritual discipline and stewardship practice of thanks living. Thanks living. Blizzard calls churches generosity gyms, places where we stretch and strengthen our generosity muscles as we are able to look beyond our own fears and look to helping others. There is no question that the giving impulse is like a muscle. If it's not used regularly, it will atrophy or wither. The giving impulse is like a muscle. It has to be used regularly or it may disappear. A last will and testament is our last chance to testify to our values, to demonstrate to those left behind what was important to us and to model that by flexing the generosity muscle. Whatever our assets must be, most of us want to be fair about how they are distributed after our deaths. Perhaps what is most important is that we convey an attitude of stewardship that gives our adult children a positive moral view of money, Kaufman's wrote in their book, Necessary Conversations. The goal of many of us is to live in a way that allows us to pass on some of our resources to them and to our church and charities that depend on our beneficence. Randy Alcorn says the highest calling of parents is not to leave their children a good inheritance, but to leave them a godly inheritance. Countless Christians have left no material inheritance to their families, but a godly heritage that serves as a point of reference for spiritual and moral values their entire lives. C.T. Studd, a wealthy, famous English athlete, liquidated his state while he was alive donated the money, and went off into missions. He explained his thinking in the following words, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for God will last. I'd like to leave you with a poem. It's called, Do Your Giving While You're Living, Then You're Knowing When You're Going. This is the story of Frederick R. Birch. It was written by Ronald Frentz, who used to be a stewardship minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, churches in Canada. I'll tell you the story of Frederick R. Birch. He once was the wealthiest man in his church. He owned hotels, factories, bullion and stock, gilt-edge investments as solid as rock. And most of his wealth, he so frequently said, will go to the Lord just as soon as I'm dead. So he made out his will, bequests large and small, not a good cause was missed. He remembered them all. To his own little church in the village he planned, new carpet and pews and an organ so grand, For his pastor, a new house with rooms large and nice, to the Sunday school library, a generous slice, another large gift to their own local college where young folks were taught the essentials of knowledge, the youth group at church, room, board, and tuition to any who chose to go off in foreign missions. Now, Satan stood by with a devilish grin, seeing all that Frederick R. planned to put in. Ahem, said the devil, concealing a smile. I'll see this old rascal lives a long while. So Satan chased off each menacing germ and sprayed with hell septic each threatening worm till not a disease could get near Brother Birch. And his excellent health was the talk of the church. At 60, Frederick was hardy and hale. At 70, he hadn't begun to fail. At 80, his step was still youthful and spry. At 90, they wondered, would he ever die? But the day after he turned 107, a germ slipped on through and sent Frederick to heaven. So they laid Frederick R. Birch low in his grave, and the mourners gathered in solemn enclave. Lawyer Smith read the will in a deep voice and round, but there wasn't a named legatee to be found. The little home church he had loved in his youth had closed its front doors and ceased preaching the truth. His pastor had died penniless long before, sorry, I, and the Sunday school library existed no more. The local college they found when they wrote was long ago sold on account of a note. So his ungodly relatives each took a slice and his lawyer forgot and he paid himself twice. And there wasn't a friend and there wasn't a mourner, not even the paper boy ra- round on the corner. And Satan still smiling turned to task fresh and new brothers and sisters, let this be a lesson to you. Give all that you can while you're still alive and strong, and update your will often, because Frederick R. Birch was wrong. Amen.